Evening, Dan. Hey, Omar. How are you doing? Yeah, all right, thanks. Loaded question, loaded question. I know, I know. Recovering from a bout of, well, in the midst of a bout of COVID, but uh, <clears throat> getting there, they'll be, they'll be coughing and, and splustering, which I'm sure the, uh, I'm sure the listeners will enjoy, but uh, yeah, we're getting there, getting there. You might need to, might need to take the mic at some point. Well, I think I think the listeners will be a bit disappointed, actually. To be fair, if um, if if I have to make some um, decent uh, data analysis, so hopefully your voice lasts out. But um, yeah, it sounds like it was a it was a inopportune moment to get COVID with uh, the window ending, and we were just um, talking beforehand, weren't we, in in prep for this and uh, uh, talking about a few topics. But you know, you asked me how. Um, how the window was and um, all the great deals obviously we, we we do get involved in which is fantastic and i was simply saying that if everyone actually realized the type of stuff that sometimes i do have to, to do i'm not sure it sounds glamorous which is you know a lot of a lot of the time in truth um, we'll, we'll get into the window details in a second um you know a lot of my clients and agents and players especially the agents are you know literally asking me technical detailed questions on the intermediaries regulations and on the uh, cost control stuff and on the regulations as to loyalty pay- payments or signing on bonuses or image rights related stuff and because when you say those types of things it sounds really great but actually when you get into the detail and having to look through the minutiae and the nuances of the the regs it's not quite as uh, it's quite as glamorous as it may sound well, i was gonna ask like, how much of that do you know off the top of your head and how much of it is having to to open up a book to, or, or a document or PDF or whatever it is to find out what the what the rules are. You're going to embarrass me, but the truth is, is that what what I tend to know is I tend to know where to look, um, because ultimately sometimes the rules do change and you you don't sometimes realise it from year to year. But a lot of the time, you just want to absolutely sense check the precise wording um, in truth, so that um, you can be pretty confident in what you're saying. So with one deal, we were working on you know the agents were like are asking me a particular thing about the regulations and what the word says and then actually a lot of the time i'll speak i'll phone the fa up and ask um, them on their interpretation of the guidance or particular things as well so you know sometimes um i i've been there and done that before and i'll know the answer sometimes if it's a little bit more novel you know i'll sometimes just ask um one of the lawyers in the team just for a second view or second opinion and sometimes i'll just speak to the fa directly and say we're thinking of doing it this way you know my view is i don't think there's anything and then sometimes they'll just say actually this happened recently on something else so we should we'd advise you to do it like this and then i'd say well what about this so you know a lot of the time it can be by myself sometimes it's collaborative and sometimes it's actually liaising with the regulator to to see how it all works out in practice really Super interesting. Yeah, there's just so much that, that needs to get done to get a deal done, isn't there? That you just don't <coughs> always appreciate necessarily as an outsider. It, but, yeah, uh, it's true. Yeah. And and just very briefly, I think what's also important is I think what clients really respect sometimes is you you don't necessarily need to know the answer straight away. Obviously, it helps you need to know it pretty soon, especially when deadlines are looming. But actually, lots of the time, it's uh, being able to be in touch with the right people to be able to get the go ahead on certain things um, and then understanding where those pressure points are. So, you know, as, as I've said previously, I tend not to be as manically busy on deadline day because lots of my clients will have done a lot of stuff prior to that. Um, it does happen on occasion where there is there are things that need to be done and um, deals need to be signed on and signed off, really. But, um, yeah, it wasn't too bad yesterday. Thank goodness. Yeah, no, good, good to hear. So should we dive into kind of the big macro points to the window should I, should I kind of summarize what some of the big numbers are yeah we'd love to hear i mean this is this is the bit that i'm as interested in everyone else in so yeah go for it yeah well first out firstly a, a shout out to Arel in our 21st group team who, who pulled together well i say a lot of these all these numbers <laughs> i'm going to kind of go through and, and look at and um, now did a really job looking at the major trends um I, I think the main thing that we will reflect on in this window is that it's the first kind of 
post-pandemic window, even though we're not really <laughs> me sitting here with COVID saying it's post-pandemic. It's it's certainly the first window that uh, looks more like a pre-pandemic window. So there was no the level of spending was <clears throat> really at its, its highest level since 2017-18, the second highest window since since 2010. Um, you know, compared to a, a ten-year period, you know, spending's up about 44% in, in the Premier League. So really a lot more confidence um, with clubs with knowing that fans are back in stadiums and a bit more confidence around the fact that we've again through the worst of this Omicron wave there's been no uh, there's been postponements but we know that the league's not going to be paused there's no kind of rebates to broadcasters <clears throat> and obviously the, there's some kind of optimism about the the future international um, rights deal so there's a lot um, a lot of positivity I think in the market um, Serie A also had a busy window um, spending about 57% more than the historical average about 175 million um, spent in, in the window um, so a, a real kind of um, investment there that um, perhaps is a bit more a bit more confidence in, in the Italian market as well. Uh, but generally, the Premier League just seems to be the healthiest of um, of the leagues, so making up nearly half of spending across the big five leagues, about five percentage points up than normal. Um, so I think that's um, kind of testament to the way that the Premier League's ridden out um, this period of time. Um, but there's obviously uh, a lot more. Uh, a lot more confidence from clubs and, and they're looking to bring in players and obviously partly boosted by by circumstance with with Newcastle as well being uh, boosted by money in this window. Um, the other big thing I think in the market which I pulled out for me was um, on the loan market um, and the extent to which the types of players that are being loaned is, is very different. That's actually quite interesting in the context of the changes in, in loan regulations that we always threaten to talk about but we never probably covered in, in as much detail as we would have liked. But and the peak, the, the age at which players are being loaned has, has gone up. It's been increasing actually over over the last five years and it's now at nearly 25 years old, the average player that's loaned um, during the transfer window um, into the Premier League this um, this window, which um, is pretty much peak age for attacking players. Um, and one of the things that obviously the regulations is looking to do is, is stop the hoarding of players and, and reducing the amount of international loans that will take place and FIFA expecting domestic loans to follow um, in tow. So obviously there's a lot, I think there's a lot, one of the things that we saw during the pandemic was a massive reduction in volume of deals. And I think <clears throat> a lot of these loans that are now happening is a kind of fallout of the fact that clubs are needing to move players. And we obviously saw Spurs are, are a big, big one in that. Uh, and then just finally, in terms of the types of players being loaned, it's not just kind of older players, but also, you know, off greater value. Um, so Spurs, again, with Lascelles and, and Dombele and Hill um, being loaned. Typically, they used to make up about 19% of the value that was loaned out during a window. Uh, we're now at twenty five percent, so a lot of a lot of change there in terms of the loan market. So, a uh, really interesting window. Clearly, a big shift in dynamics. So I, say, I think there was a bit of pent up demand, really, in terms of the big reduction in volume that had happened uh, over the previous uh, previous few years, previous couple of years or so. Uh, and now players are starting to move about, and clubs are feeling confident in being able to spend spend the money. I'm going to let you take a small breather for, for 10 seconds at least before your uh, voice completely goes over and say, yeah, I, before I, I think there's a, to, to preempt, I think there's a couple of really interesting elements. I'm, I'm thinking different degrees you're probably going to go over, Omar, which is, you know, the winners and losers of the, the window to a degree. And without spoiling too much, it sounds like um, Newcastle statistically have had quite a, a an important window in lots of ways. But um, yeah, I was really interested on the, the, the loan side of things. And as you, exactly as you said on the Spurs side, I mean, you know, without going into the figures too much, uh, it was amazing for me to see, I said for me to see, but amazing to see the mar- a market in which, you know, Ndombele, the Celso, and I'm still not pronouncing his name right, Gil, Jill, Hill, um, take your take your pick, um, you know, uh, have all left, who have all 
Spurs have all paid huge amounts of money for. And and to an extent, it, it just seemed obviously it's to do with new managers coming in, and that says something about um, uh, how different managers value players um, and uh, that consistency and continuity of approach obviously works well with with teams that have longer term managers in place but for a player you know that they Spurs reportedly spent I think over 30 million on potentially um, Hill um, to then go out on loan within you know uh, four months of um, um, him arriving seems seems difficult to reconcile especially if you know you've got um, you know, a director of football, um, a football director there that's looking for a certain, which and a certain type of player. So, yeah, I'd be really interested, Omar, on your views on that generally um, as a continuity approach, but then also, I guess, on the winners and losers um, from from the Premier League perspective. Yeah, I might I might jump to the jump to the latter actually on the, the winners and losers, um, and I think there was obviously a lot of a lot of um, observations about what was happening at the bottom end of of the league table. Um, Probably well that and, and obviously the Champions League place are the only real points of tension in the in the league this season, um, and <clears throat> Newcastle obviously attracting a lot of attention. I think I I before um, you know, I saw a stat they spent more apparently in this window than they did in any of the Mike Ashley January windows, which is which is kind of extraordinary, um, and, and four times more than the average Premier League side does in, in January. Um, so uh, there's a couple of things, and, and relying on some of the model outputs here again from from Morel, you kindly pulled these for me. Uh, the first thing is that they obviously weakened a, uh, a relegation rival in, in Chris Wood. So Chris Wood, I think, has scored something like 30% of um, Burnley's goals in the last three or four seasons. So clearly, even though his output wasn't quite the same this year, he's clearly been a key player um, for the team. And actually, we estimate that that um, removal of, of Chris Wood from the, from the Burnley team and given his kind of historic output has about a 7-8% swing in, in relegation probability alone between between the two teams. So kind of a, a sensible move to, to weaken a rival. Um, you could argue, I mean, you could do the maths on that, I suppose, um, 10% of whatever the future TV revenue you'd expect to be from staying in the league is probably worth that, um, that spending the money on, on the transfer fee and, um, and salary. Uh, but the main thing was the other players they brought in. We wouldn't ex- expect Chris Wood to start if Callum Wilson's fit, but Trippier, Burn and Target and Gimarish are all better players in our model than, than the um, existing players have in their team. And when we compute all that, um, our model suggests that Newcastle's relegation odds have fallen from 63% to 48%, which uh, might not sound like big. It might not sound that big, um, you know, 15 percentage points um, drop, but it actually is huge when you consider the amount of uncertainty that still exists over the course of, of the rest of the season. Um, you know, it's very rare that a team would move their odds that materially um, over the course of a window. Uh, and our, our models, like um, those four players, I think with all of them, we're expecting them to play at least 70% of, of minutes over the rest of the season, which when you consider that, pretty much half of don't play even 50% of minutes. So the big chunk of players um, that signed in January, don't, a big chunk of strikers that signed in January don't score goals. Um, our expectation is that these players will be successes for, for Newcastle, which uh, this is something I always reflect on at this point. Um, there's obviously none of the players have played yet. There's always a sense of buzz and excitement about how well, the players will perform when they um, when they take their team, but you have to kind of bear in mind that fifty percent of these players that everyone's excited about are going to fail to a greater or lesser degree. Um, but but in the Newcastle's case, we do um, we do kind of have an expectation that they'll do well. Um, the other winner um, that's um, done well out the window is, is Aston Villa. Um, so they obviously spent a lot in in summer the Jack Grealish money, um, and uh, they've since invested again with with the likes of Dinia and, and Chambers, and obviously Coutinho on loan. Um, and our model suggests that they improve their chance of a top half finish from about 50 to 67 percent, 
and actually have an outside chance of, of getting to the European places, given that Liverpool and Chelsea are playing the AFL Cup final. Seventh will probably be um, a Conference League place, which, which would obviously be an enormous result for Villa, about 10% chance of that happening. Um, just just beneath a 10% chance of that happening um, if they um, over the rest of the season. So they've had a pretty good window. Um, and then I suppose the, the the loser of the window kind of alluded to earlier is, is potentially Burnley. Um, they've obviously made money in the window, but the loss of Chris Wood and the, and the swing that has to, to Newcastle isn't great. Uh, and with Verkost, again, my pronunciation is horrendous, but with Verkost, um, we rate him as similar quality to Chris Wood um, and obviously similar profile of player. Um, but it's going to be a challenge for him. He's um, he scored about 0.3 non-penalty goals per 90 in um, in Bundesliga. There's a slight discount moving to the Premier League, about a 10% discount in goal scoring moving to the Premier League. So not expecting him to be a hugely prolific Premier League goal scorer. Burnley also don't get that many chances per game. So again, expect him to have you know an impact that's similar to Wood, but not necessarily beyond it. Uh, and so Armel has, has their odds increasing from for about 40% to 44%, so a small increase. That obviously decreased for Newcastle has kind of been spread amongst their, their main rivals. Um, so, yeah, I, 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 I'm really intrigued to see how Newcastle get on. I think they've probably done their business pretty well. Um, look at the players that they've brought in and, and knowing just how tough new, um, January is. Um, and I think, um, I think it is fair to say now that they are less than 50% to go, go down. I think that's what the betting markets have as well. And all, that means all the other three teams are above 50% um, to go down as a result. And I think that's pretty much as good as you might have hoped for um, in the window. Can I, if possible, switch to um, our favourite topic, which is um, Liverpool, at least just for just for two or three minutes in advance of then. Omar, I know that Orella's also done some really interesting um, uh, perspective, sort of helicopter view on the the market in general. But we were having this brief discussion beforehand, weren't we, about, well, I, I was at least uh, trying to pick your brains on it, on um, Liverpool's Diaz signing and, and, and that in the context of Liverpool was supposed to have a quiet window. Spurs apparently um, um, are interested in signing Diaz and as a result, because he's a long-term target, Liverpool, Liverpool push ahead and, um, and, and get that deal done relatively late in the window. But I was Intrigued in your on your view as well, um, just from a supporter's view, but also obviously from um, a contract renewal perspective, because we were talking about the fact that all three of uh, Liverpool's front three, so Mane, Firmino and Salah, are all out of contract uh, next summer, so 18, less than 18 months left on their deals. And with uh, Jota already joining, Diaz now joining as well, and, and correct me if I'm wrong, Omar, but I think for Porto, Diaz generally was playing on that inside left forward or left wing position, which is traditionally been Mane's position over the last two or three seasons for Liverpool. I wondered whether that, to a degree, um, strengthens Liverpool's hand um, in relation to uh, their contract renegotiations with Mane Firmino and obviously Salah's the, the the elephant in the room, to a degree, you know, on, on fantastic form. But in a way, all of them approaching their 30th, already 30 or in their 30th year. And my rather controversial um, opinion was whether actually Diaz joining, um, even though it's in Mane, potentially Mane's position or potentially Firmino's position, um, uh, puts uh, the Salah contract renegotiation in a slightly different light, simply because he's the one that will obviously break the wage ceiling if um, he is to agree a new deal with Liverpool. And whether it actually um, means that if Mane or Firmino or both were going to resign, they might not be for significantly higher numbers than their current contracts are potentially worth. So whether the highly controversial position that I was chatting to you about, Omar, was whether there could be a possibility of Mane and Firmino signing for not significant upgrade fees and then selling Salah um, 
in the summer perhaps for a, quite a large amount because obviously a huge valuable hugely valuable player but in the last 12 months of his contract and query whether the the wider perspective on that actually is um a sort of piece that we're looking at at the moment isn't it omar around um how many elite players in their prime um who are in the last 18 months to 12 months of their deal actually re-sign with their club and you know i might be completely wrong my initial view was that was obviously quite a low uh number of players and actually it would actually be an outlier of a player to re-sign in their prime um with um, a short amount of time left on um, their contract yeah i i part of me obviously liverpool um conscious about the wage structure i think otherwise you would just throw <clears throat> throw the money at a renewal of salah wouldn't you i mean clearly one of the best certainly five maybe three players in the world at the moment um i wonder if liverpool have half an eye on what's happening with um financial fair play regulations with uefa and trying to understand you know the extent to which they can invest more and the extent to which that um stifles them down the, down the line i think one of the things that um they w- will, well, I'd be really interested to know is is when you sign someone from Porto, um, you know, they're not going to be on enormous salaries. They're probably going to be on very small to a mid-table, maybe even bottom half Premier League team. And so when, when he comes into Liverpool, he's maybe doubling, maybe at most tripling that salary, but it's still going to be short of the likes of um, Asala, Mane, Firmino. And, and, and I think the big concern whenever you're renewing um, the contracts of, of players like that is you get up to, you know, huge numbers and the rest of the squad wants to follow. Uh, and if, if what well, I think Liverpool would be hoping is that Diaz comes in, performs well, and it, to your point, I think Liverpool can go well. You know, this is the quality we can get in the market for much lower rates. Um, you know, that's that's why we're not renegotiating for, for the value that you demand. So, yeah, I, I'd be really interested to see what what happens. I, I would be really sad to see um, Salah leave, but um, certainly feels like the demands perhaps aren't something that Liverpool can afford. And obviously, they um, their, their wage spending, I think, is been overlooked to a degree they have been one of the top wage spenders in the league for the last few years now uh, partly um, because of bonuses that have been paid out for winning the league winning the champions league um, in the last few seasons but, but they are they have spent a lot on, on wages and less on on transfer spending and, and they will have to have to manage that under the constraints of financial fair play um i, I wanted to i wanted to ask you about the the Dali alley deal because i thought that was super interesting I, i'm not sure i'd really seen any deal like that before where it was essentially um, free. You often see deals where players move to clubs, and their pay will be contingent on appearances, and, and that may well be the case with Deli Ali. But I'm not sure I've seen that many deals where the upfront is reportedly free, and then you're talking about you know a series of conditional payments based on based on appearances. That felt relatively rare. Yeah, it, it's true, and um, so I mean, I think you know from looking on the looking on from the outside, and um, you know a free transfer. It could be classed as a free transfer. It's really effectively not, depending on when the first transfer payment amounts crystallise after a certain amount of appearances. As we've talked about before, how you classify appearances, whether it's a start, whether it's just turning on, turning up on the pitch. You know, I wonder whether you know the playoff effectively has been um, Delhi on a free, but it's not really a free because those contingent crystallized transfer payments come around let's just say if it's reported 20 games in or 30 games in so that the the downside for Everton is um, although appears relatively small might actually be quite significant if Delhi plays you know 30 50 75 games um, for the club and and the flip side of that obviously the 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 counter side not a counter but in comparison effectively we had the Obama Young transfer where it looked like whereas you know um, Spurs were still trying to 
um, get, even if it's um, a transfer fee in the medium to long term, that Arsenal have effectively come to an agreement with Barcelona um, to, for for Aubameyang to leave on a free transfer, bearing in mind that Aubameyang was signed five or six years ago for fifty million pounds. Obviously, he's thirty two years old and on huge salaries. That's effectively the um, the issue. So um, the, the the negotiation over the last few days, I would have presumed, would have been around. Um, if Arsenal were going to waive a transfer fee for the player, how much of um, his salary, firstly, he was willing to forego in a deal with Barcelona and how much um, of the total amount Barcelona were willing to pay by way of um, by way of salary. But there was also another interesting thing with the, the Barcelona point, which I saw today on Athletic just today, which was because they've signed four players, they can only register three for the Europa League, um, I believe. So it'll be really interesting to know also which player... They leave out so it's Alaves, uh, Aubameyang, I'm going to lose track, Traore and Torres, I think, wasn't it? Those four, you know, it'd be interesting to see who they leave out of the, the Europa League squad, um, which they'll obviously want to still do well in. So um, free transfers, sometimes free, most usually not. Yeah, the squad um, squad restrictions are, I think, <clears throat> maybe the most underreported aspect of, of dealings. Like play, um, You often see players linked to clubs and you know it can't happen because they've maxed out the number of overseas players they've got or they're at 25 or, or whatever it is um, it's it's a real headache particularly for clubs at the top end of the premier league where normally they have they are pretty close to maxing out the 17 that they can have and they obviously need four plus four or, or eight homegrown players in um in their premier league squad it's it's a bit of a bit of a nightmare um i was i was going to mention just one other thing about really quickly if that's okay that yeah. just uh, um came across um when I was reading yesterday, when another deal, I think it was for Cov, is it Carvalho from Fulham to Liverpool that didn't go ahead, um, and there was loads of interesting dynamics there. Um, and if I just talk through just really briefly for a minute or so, and then we can obviously you can give that sort of helicopter perspective on the the, the window if you think that's um, the, one of the last things we can talk about, just because Carvalho, under twenty four player, obviously come through Fulham ranks, um, out of contract in the summer. If he moves to a um, an English club, then it goes to the PFCC, which is the Professional Footballers Compensation Committee. Harvey Elliott, Daniel Sturridge, Danny Ings, others have gone before that before, um, and Purdue as well. But really, they, you don't get market value for the player. You get a compensation fee, which also can include quite a lot of sell-on clauses and performance bonuses if they do pretty well. I think the maximum amount they're getting for Elliott, Fulham were getting for Elliott, who moved to Liverpool, was you know in the low millions where... Like obviously he's already probably a twenty or thirty million pound player after starting the season well for Liverpool. So the dilemma really for Fulham was: do you let the the compensation committee deal with um, the amount, or even worse, and that's only if he goes to an English club, or even worse if he actually then goes abroad, then it's only minimal FIFA um, compensation um, payable. So then there's this risk of um, uh, Liverpool obviously putting a significant amount of money up front now. Uh, and then loan, potentially loaning him back for the season. It seems like that deal didn't go through, but there's still nothing to stop the clubs agreeing an amount um, that would effectively enable Liverpool to sign the player in the, the summer and register him. Otherwise, if there's a dispute between the parties as to the, the, the valuation, then it goes to that PFCC um, and then it's dealt with. But obviously, there, because there's no agreement between the clubs, there's still the possibility that the player could go abroad and Fulham receive almost nominal compensation as a, as a result. So those dynamics and that sort of game theory is an interesting, yeah, an interesting subplot to the window too. Yeah, interesting. I think um, in my experience, the clubs haven't been, I think clubs haven't always been that happy with um, the the transfer fees or the tribunal or what's been agreed by a tribunal um, historically. So I think it's Fulham's interest, isn't it, to, to sell at the kind of prevalent 
the listing market rate rather than having to, to wait for something else. Um, and and on, on that kind of conversation of, of value, um, thought kind of summarize a couple of the deals that, again, Arella had highlighted as kind of good value and, and poor value. Um, so in terms of good value, um, Betancourt, uh, dispersed from Juventus, our models estimated that he was a, a 40 million euro player um, and obviously signed for pretty much half that um, reportedly. So it looks like Spurs got a pretty good um, pretty good price for from there. The other one was um, Watford's left-back. This one passed by the Hassan Kamara coming from Liga. Um, our model suggested he was about 10 million, 9, 10 million euro player um, signing for about 4 million euros. Um, so, you know, but based on our estimation of how good he is, um, seems to be a pretty good pretty good deal there and again will help with, with Watford's relegation odds and um, in the context of what we discussed earlier. The really interesting one um, that in terms of kind of signing for a lot more than what we would have expected was Nathan Patterson to um, Everton. So the the Rangers wing back, uh, full back who I think reportedly cost about 14 million euros up front. It was something like 12 million pounds up front. Uh, our models that lead him at around 5 million euros. Um, and the fact of the matter is he's, he's super young. Um, he's, he's hardly played first team football um, and you know, if you strip away the fact that you know Scotland's across the border and, and very familiar with Scottish football, if if a player was signed for that amount of money from you know a pretty mid size mid size to smaller size European league, I think there would be a lot of eyebrows raised. Uh, Everton have invested that money. I mean, they've got a long link, I suppose, with with Scottish football and players coming over from the border. Um, I, I did a comparison earlier in the window that suggested that the investment in Patterson was was not actually dissimilar to the investment that Everton made in, in Leighton Baines. Uh, how many 15 or so years ago now in terms of transfer fee as a proportion of, of, of the club's revenue so that's kind of um, the upside I suppose if, if Patson has even half the career Baines did at Everton he'd have done well I think there is an element of risk in that when, when you're signing a player who started off very well in their career but you just never know how they're going to um, how they're going to develop um, so yeah that, that, that'll be the one I suppose to, to keep an eye on really and, and obviously with a new manager um, be interesting to see. Lampard will be very good with, with young players at Chelsea, but the extent to which um, he'll be the same for Patterson will be interesting to see. Omar, exactly th- uh, 7.30, spot on. Um, thanks for the analysis. Thanks, Oriel, to the anal- for the analysis too. I think it was um, yeah, some really interesting stuff as usual. And um, we'll be back next week. Maybe we'll talk about loans and a few other things that crop up in between. Nice one. Cheers, Dan. Rest up, mate. Cheers. Bye. Thanks for listening. You can follow me on Twitter, TikTok and Instagram at Football Law, read my blogs and listen to my previous podcasts via my website, danielg.com forward slash blogs. Please do subscribe to the Dundeal Football Podcast, like, share and tag me. If you like the content, if not my voice, you'll probably also like my book Dundeal, an insider's guide to football contracts, multi-million pound transfers and Premier League big business a bit of a mouthful. It's available to buy in hard copy, digitally and via Audible. All links are in the podcast show notes. Lastly, the podcast is powered by 13, which is a fashion brand I've started. All proceeds go towards cancer charity research and particularly the stellar work done by John Krell, who has helped my mum through some difficult times over the last few years. You can take a look at the merch and hopefully buy a t-shirt, hoodie, cap, or all three. Please do spread the word and go to 13shop.co.uk. That's 13shop.co.uk. Thanks for listening.